The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. Good morning. How's everybody doing? If you are visiting with us today um, as a result of our uh, family dedication, we welcome you. My name is Tommy. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are working through the book of John um, right now. And you've joined us as we get to chapter 2, um, working through this. And so far, we've seen that in the book of John, that it intros with these proclamations of who Jesus is, that we have this theological prologue that lays out Jesus as being eternal, as being creator. We move through that and we're introduced to a guy by the name of John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is crucial in where we've been for the last few weeks because we're in this very first week of transition from the ministry of John the Baptist to the ministry of Jesus. And a couple of weeks ago, we presented this as like an origins week where we can see the beginnings of the disciples, that we can see the beginnings of the ministry of Jesus. And that's where we find ourselves today is that this is the account of the seventh day of that week, that this is the, the finishing of that. But what's also interesting is that it is also going to be the beginning of something brand new that we're going to talk about today. Now, this opening week can be charted like this. We see day one as being John the Baptist witness concerning Jesus. Day two, John the Baptist encounter with Jesus. Those of you that were here, that's that behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then day three is John the Baptist referral of his disciples to Jesus and then we see Andrew's introduction of his brother Peter to Jesus. And then day five, which was last week's message, the recruitment of Philip and Nathaniel. And then we see the skipping of a day to get us to the seventh day, the wedding at Cana. Now, what's important to understand is that this new section that we're going to enter into is often called the book of signs. The book of signs is going to last from chapter two of John all the way through chapter 12 of John. And so when we look at this, it's the very first sign of this collection. Now, on face value, this narrative is very, very easy to follow. We see verses 1 through 3, a situation described. Verses 3 through 5, need for intervention has been made known. Verses 6 through 8, the dialogue between Jesus and others. Verses 9 and 10, the servants carry out a command. And then in verse 11, it emphasizes that this first sign was for the purpose that the disciples would believe. And so the narrative is really straightforward, but to understand what's actually happening here and why it's included, first off in the book of John and as the intro to the section, we need to skip all the way to the end of this passage. So we're going to start at the end. So everybody look at verse 11, and this is where we're going to begin today. Verse 11 says this, this, the first sign, uh, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan, Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now notice that this event is called a sign. It's not simply called a miracle. As we work through the book of John, the word miracle is not going to be used at any point in this chapter 2 through 12 referring to these signs. They're always said to be a sign. So in order to understand these events, we need to understand what a sign is. Beasley Murray uh, actually speaks to this, and he says this, the concept of a sign is a familiar one in the Old Testament. It was used to demonstrate the truth of God's word through his prophet and thus authenticate the prophet himself. And so as we look at signs, 
It's there to authenticate the message that is coming from the prophet. It's there to show God's stamp of approval on this person. And so it's there so that we know the power of God rests with this person. If you want an example of that, we can look at Exodus 4, 1 through 9. The Bible says this, Then Moses answered, But behold... They will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what's in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. I love that part because that shows exactly what I would have done if I ever throw down a stick and it becomes a snake. When you look up, you will no longer see me. But the Lord said to Moses, put your hand out and catch it by the tail. There's a ton of faith there. So he put out his hand and he called it and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put it inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, the hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was stored, restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, listen to this, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some of the water from the Nile, pour it on dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Notice this, the wording, listen to the sign. That means to observe the authority that's behind the sign. And as such, observe the authority that's in your words. If God is going to work these miracles through you, then it's God's approval on your life. And as such, they should listen to your words. Now, there is a connection here. Um, a lot of commentators grab onto this, and we don't have time to go through it today. Um, we may at some point with some of these other signs. But there is a connection of this first sign back to Egypt, back to the plagues. And um, when we think about the first plague being the turning of water into blood, the symbol of death, and the first one, water being turned to wine, which is a symbol of joy, there is a connection there. And there's a lot in that. And I, I encourage you to go and read through that and see some different perspectives on it because it is quite amazing. But this morning, what we want to really focus on is, are these signs. Now, also, when we look in the book of John, that these signs are never intended to be standalones. They're not intended to be this distinct, miraculous work that's left there. It's all on their own, and you can leave it. In the book of John, it always points to something greater. It's a type and a picture of what's going to happen in Jesus' greatest sign, which is his resurrection, his final sign. Kent Hughes says this. Verse 11 tells us this was the beginning of Jesus' miraculous signs. When John uses the word sign, he always uses it with the idea of a, mir a miracle that conveys a deeper teaching. Beasley Murray says it like this. The concept of a sign is familiar in the Old Testament. It's used especially of events, both normal and supernormal, that demonstrate the truth of God's word through his prophet and so authenticate the prophet himself. It also denotes events that herald things to come, especially in relation to the eschatological future. 
As in the synoptic gospel, so in the fourth gospel, the miraculous deeds of Jesus attest that the promise relating to the kingdom of God are actualized in and through Jesus. Our evangelist goes one step further in viewing the miracles as parables of the kingdom, which comes through the total work of the Son of God. So what we need to see is that each of these signs has a threefold purpose, not just one. The first is that it is a miraculous deed. It is, of course, a miracle. It's something that can't be explained. It's something bigger than us. It's miraculous outside of us. The second thing that we need to understand as we work through these is that it authenticates Jesus's authority. It's going to authenticate that the things that he says are truth because they are authenticated by the stamp of the work of God. The third thing is that it does point to a future event. It's a parable of something that is to occur. So a miraculous deed, authenticating Jesus's authority and points to a future event. So now that we have an understanding of what this story is, a sign, and what a sign is, let's go all the way back to verse 1, and let's work through this, keeping that in our mind. So verse 1 said, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And so this section is going to start off with this introduction of time again. You guys have noticed over the last few weeks that this is a chronological laying out of days. And so we know that this is an actual historic event. It's not like a regular parable would be, even though it does have some characters, characteristics of it that are pointing to something else. This is an actual historic event. We also see the setting laid out. We see that it's a wedding in Cana, and we also see a cast of characters introduced. We see that Mary is there. We see that Jesus is there. We see that the disciples are there. And later, we're going to be introduced to some other people. Now, this third day reference, whenever we in the church here, the third day, we immediately jump to something. Is this a type and a picture of the resurrection of Jesus? And it may be, especially when we look at the reason of the resurrection, the reason of the death, that it is to bring completion and joy and to fulfill the law. And then we look back at the instances that we're having here. It could be a type and picture. There could be a big connection. For me, though, I know for certain that it connects back to chapter 1, verse 50. Chapter 1, verse 50 said this. We learned this last week. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? you'll see greater things than these. So this is Jesus fulfilling these greater things. I'm going to show you something bigger than this. I'm going to show you something miraculous. I'm going to show you something amazing. If you believed because of this, just wait till what you're going to see next. And this is what Jesus is laying out as what we're going to see next. Now, I think also that Cana has significance in its insignificance. What do we know about Cana? This is our full extent of it. When Nathaniel was born there and there was a wedding there. We don't know much about Cana. And I think that plays into the message of this, that God takes the ordinary, that God takes the thing that doesn't seem amazing. And in his hands, he works it to something great. He works it to something miraculous. He works it to something amazing. And so I think in the insignificance of Cana, we need to see significance in it. That God is going to accomplish his work, that God is going to work through things that may seem totally insignificant, but he's going to do amazing things with them. 
Now, who is getting married? It's a logical question that we all want to ask. Like, I want the whole story. I want to read and have everything laid out to me. We don't know, but there are commentators that connect it with a couple of people. One, they connect it to Nathaniel. They say, well, maybe this is somebody that he knew. He was born there. It's his hometown. Maybe they've been invited through him. <clears throat> there are others that connect it to Mary. And the reason that they connect it to Mary is because of the wording of the passage and then her getting involved in the situation at the wedding. I tend to lean toward it being connected to Mary, not that this has anything at all to do with the message that we receive from it. It's just one of those things that we like to know. And why do I connect it with Mary? Because of the wording of the passage. It says, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And so it seems like she's primary. And as we go through this, we're going to see that her actions also seem to point to the fact that she is primary at this wedding. So what does the scripture say happened? When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now for us, if we go to a wedding and they run out of punch in the little fountain where you go and you stick your cup, no one's going to freak out. Oh no, you've run out of punch. This is terrible. Your wedding's not gonna last now. This is, for, this is terrible. You're gonna say, oh, are you thirsty? There's a water fountain around the corner. Go get some water. Everything's swell. Do not mess up my wedding day. Nobody's even gonna bother the groom or the bride with this. But that's because in our culture, it's not as big of a deal as it was to them. In their culture, when you threw a party like this, you were legally liable for having all the provisions needed for the wedding. Legally liable. Put on top of that, the fact that in the Old Testament, wine represented joy. <laughs> you run out of wine at a wedding, what has also run out? Joy. Uh, weddings are supposed to be a joyous day. This is doomed from the beginning. And so when we look at this, we need to understand within this context that there's a lot going on. Leon Morris notes that running out of wine was something of a slur on the host. For they had not fully discharged the duties of hospitality. It's also possible that the lack of wine involved another embarrassment and that it rendered the bridegroom's family liable to a lawsuit. They were legally required to provide a feast of a certain standard. If this were true in my culture, you are never coming to my house for a party because we are inevitably going to run out of buffalo dip at the football party. And I don't want you suing me because I ran out of buffalo dip. And so this is totally different. And we don't get this if we don't use our mind, use history and go back and see what's actually happening. And now we get the context of why a miracle was suited here, because this is a much bigger deal than we at first think it is. Now, this next part is one time that a pastor standing in front of you at church is going to say, do not do this. Do not follow Jesus's example here. And the reason why is because of culture. Look at, imagine this for a minute. Your mom comes up and asks you to do something and you respond, woman, what does this have to do with me? Four days later, when you wake up in the hospital, you're gonna realize that it was a mistake. If I were to do that to my mom today, I'm sorry, mama. I got done, right? Finished. Um, also, when I heard this, it also made me think of the cartoon, The Incredibles. You guys remember this line? You tell me where my suit is, woman. We're talking about the greater good. Frozone, by the way. I love animated movies. 
And so in our culture, if I were to use the word woman, it would be disrespectful. Imagine this morning, Denise, if I were to have woken up and got my clothes out of the closet and threw them on the bed and said, woman, iron my clothes. I need to look good. She would have looked at me and said, man, better watch yourself. We're still married. It didn't happen. She did help me iron, but it didn't happen, I promise. And so within our culture, if we start off with woman, this is not a super happy moment here because we just got hit. But in ancient times, this is not a derogatory term. This is actually a term of endearment. It's something that's used with compassion behind it. It's something that's used with respect behind it. John, uh, in the book of John, we see Jesus using this term more than just this instance. Let's look at a couple of examples. In John chapter 4, verse 16, Jesus said, go to her. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. In that passage, does this sound harsh or or snippy or anything like that? No, it's, it's used in respect. If you want a better example of this, this is not the only time that Jesus refers to his mother as woman. What's the other time? Look at this, John chapter 19, verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, which we think is John, the writer of the book of John, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciples took, the disciple took her to his own home. So see, this isn't a term of disrespect. It's not at all that, but it is a term of separation. We can't overlook that part. Because he, he could have said, mama. He could have said, mother. He could have, he could have said something that connected her and he closer. But it is a term of separation. And I think that this passage speaks to why he chose this. Because we see in this passage a reference to his hour. And I think that what's happening here is Jesus is understanding that it is now his time to work this plan of the father, since this is the beginning of his public ministry, to its completion, saying, you're my mother, I love you, I care for you, I'm your son, it is time for me to do the will of my father. And I think that's what's being pointed to here. Now, at this point in our passage today, this is where we move into the symbolism of this first sign. See, we've seen historic stuff and we've looked at those things and this is where things begin to get pretty symbolic and it starts with my hour has not yet come. See, in the book of John, the hour has been referred to and will be referred to 10 different times in this passage. And it's always referring to the suffering and death of Jesus. 
And so his hour is referred to, and it's pointing to this last sign, this last miracle, if you will, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And if we understand that, it begs the question, how come when Mary asked about wine, did Jesus immediately point to his death, burial, and resurrection? What was the connection here? What was the purpose of this? Well, when you understand that the purpose of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was to establish eternal, soul-deep, assured joy in us, it's almost like Mary said, hey, here's a problem. And Jesus is not just thinking of what's in front of him. He's thinking, it's not time for this yet, but it's coming. See, in his mind, he knew what the end of this story was. And when this is presented to him, he sees it as a type and picture, and it makes sense. Because if the wine had run out, that means the joy had run out. And Jesus knew that his ultimate sacrifice on the cross was going to be the source of our joy. And so there's a connection there. And even Mary didn't take this as a no from Jesus, did she? Because what's the very next thing that she said? His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So even after Jesus said this, Mary didn't take it as, oh, he just told me no. She said, do whatever he tells you. That's an interesting verse to me. It, it makes my mind begin to kind of wonder and think, what was she expecting? <clears throat> what would her expectations have been of Jesus? The Bible tells us that this is his first miracle. Was she thinking back to when the angel came to her? and told her who Jesus was and who he was going to be and, and that he is Emmanuel, that he is God with us. Was she thinking, hey, he can do something about this? Was she thinking that? There's another thought on this. Who's not in this story? Joseph. There are commentators that say that by this time, Joseph had already died and Jesus had been taking care of his mother as, as the, the head male of the house. And maybe she had seen that he takes care of problems, that he fixes things, that he's dependable. And then if there's a problem, he's going to do something about it. And the truth of the matter is that we don't know. But the thing that we do know for sure is that Mary reacted with an expectant heart that Jesus was going to do something. We can learn so much from that. If we have an expectant heart understanding that Christ will do something, I think that can take us so far. What does Mary say? She said, do whatever he tells you. And Jesus pointed to the six stone jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons and said, fill the jars with water. The servants filled them up to the brim. Now there's an interesting thing going on here. There's six pots over here for purification. And there's a few things that commentators like to say is being pointed to here. The first thing is that six is considered a number of imperfection. That seven is perfection in scripture and in the Jewish culture and their mindset. And that six is not perfect. And I think there may be something to this. And the reason why is because what was the purpose of these jars for the purification rites? Think about that just a minute. You filled them up with water, you walked over, and you washed your hands, your face, and your feet, and you were purified. You were clean. But yet, they didn't address anything on the inside. They didn't address anything about the big problems with you. 
Barclay notes that the Jews regarded seven as an imperfect or incomplete number, and he believed that the six jars stand for the imperfection of the Jewish law. That's interesting to me. Hey, this is incomplete. It's a type and picture of something else, this purification, but you're only washing the outside. You're only whitewashed tombs at this point. You're dead on the inside. This is a type and picture of what's going to come. When Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim, the servants in verses 5 and 6 are obeying completely. I, I love this. They don't just go through the motions and dump some water in these things. They fill them completely. They fill them to the brim. They fill them to the point that they are overflowing, and they do so in spite of the fact that this does not make sense. Has anybody thought about that at all as we read through this? We're out of wine. Go get some water. I didn't say we were out of water. We've still got water. We need wine, Jesus. Why am I going to get water? It doesn't make sense. But what do they do anyway? They follow through. They obey. And this would have been a very inconvenient request from Jesus. Have you thought about this? Because in our Western mind, fill something up with water. If you tell me at my house to go fill up a bucket with water, what am I doing? I'm getting the hose out. There's your water. Guys, these things weighed a lot, a lot. Think about how much 20 to 30 gallons of water weighs and then put it inside of a stone pot. This took effort. They had to take the stone pots. They had to leave. They had to fill them up with water. They had to bring them back full of water, and yet still they only had water. They obeyed completely, even though it was inconvenient, even though it was no small task to do. Our passage says, Jesus told them, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. They did, and the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, found the bridegroom, and proclaimed with surprise, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Think about this. This is going to the chief steward of the party. He would have been one of the ones in charge for the, of the quantity and the quality of wine. His name was on the line also. This party is failing all around. And what does he do? He doesn't know where it comes from. He attributes it to the bridegroom. He goes to the bridegroom and says, hey, everybody else serves the best wine first. And then when everybody's had enough wine, they bring out the junky wine. Why? Because at that point, you're not going to care what the wine tastes like. That's right, the Bible says that. Um, and so at this point, they're not really usually concerned about what the wine tastes like, but the, the, the head steward is saying, now you've brought out the best? See, usually this is the point where they bring out the stuff that doesn't matter, and yet you bring out the best. I absolutely love this. And the reason why is because Vodi Bakum sees this as having a deeper meaning. He points out the fact that people throughout the entire book of John say things that they're just saying. The point of this was to say, hey, you brought out the best, but God's hand being in it, God's sovereign hand being in it has something else to say about it. This is what Bacham says. God has done a very surprising thing. He has saved up till last his very best gift to Israel in the world. His best gift was not in Israel's past when he gave Moses the law or Israel the land. 
He has kept the best wine until the coming of Jesus. So this now is going to become a story about the water of the law and the wine of grace. See, I told you in the beginning that there's this other picture going on here. This is it, the water of the law and the wine of grace. And what does verse 11 say? This is the first of the signs Jesus did in Canaan and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed him. Carson says this, what's clear is that the first sign is linked with the summary statement of the purpose of the book in verse, uh, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. In both places, disciples saw and believed. <clears throat> We've been referring back to this verse over and over and over nearly every single week. You're gonna all have it memorized by the time we finish. But it helps us understand why these things are written. And what does that verse say again? It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, um, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what do we take away from this? What do we take away from this passage? We've talked about the history of it. We've talked about some cultural context here. What do we go home with? These are a few things that I think are really important. First, we see that Jesus is the better way of purification. <clears throat> what do I mean by that? Well, remember these jars were there for the purpose of being ceremonially clean. We're going to wash our hands. We're going to purify ourselves. But yet nothing was done about the inside. That on the inside, you're still sinful. You're still broken. You're still dead. You're still wanting. You still need purification. And with Jesus being the better way of purification, what Jesus does is step in and say, I am not going to just clean you and make you look clean to everyone. I'm going to actually transform you. In Jesus, we're transformed by the renewing of our mind that we are atoned for by his blood from the cross. And when we are looked at by the father, we are seen in the perfection of his son, Jesus. That is purification. What was in the Old Testament was a type and picture. What we have as followers of Christ is complete and total purification. Amen. Second, we see that Jesus is the better wine. And remember, what is wine? Joy. See, when, when we look at our lives, we try so often to find joy and comfort and peace and things that are temporary. In the things of this world, a lot of people look at money and prestige and power and houses and cars and stuff and the right clothes. And all of these things will bring us just a little bit of happiness for just a little while, but they never bring us joy. We think we can fulfill it in all of these other things. We are tasting inferior wine when we do that. When we look for joy anywhere outside of Jesus, you are drinking the inferior wine and saying that it's the best. And guess what? That's why we still feel incomplete in those things. That's why we still feel empty in those things. That's why even once we get that house, we need something else. Even once we get that car, once we get those shoes, once we get those clothes, then we still need something else. Guys, even in your marriage, if you're looking for total fulfillment in marriage, you're going to get married. And then one day you're going to wake up and say, I need something else. You're going to have kids. You're going to wake up one day and say, I need something else. If you're not drinking the wine of Jesus and bringing the full joy of who he is in your life, you're going to be wanting the rest of your life. 
if you accept the joy that comes through him, you're going to be satisfied from now until the day you die. And nothing else can fill that void in your life. The third thing that we see is that Jesus can use obedience to do his work. I love this one. Who are we to be used by God? Nobody. Think about this story. These servants were told to do something that made zero sense. And what did God do? He took it and he changed the situation. He took it and he made it as a sign to let us know what's to come. He took it and he used it to glorify him. Guys, God is not looking for your perfection or your qualifications. God's looking for your obedience. That's how you're used. He's not looking for you to be the most educated in the room. He's not looking for you to be the person who is the most eloquent with the gospel. He's just looking for obedience. And we see over and over and over and over again that God uses the hands of the obedience to do, of the obedient to do amazing things. And the fourth thing, we cannot miss the occasion of this miracle. It's at a wedding. Uh, those of us in the church, when we hear wedding, uh, wedding, most of us, our minds go straight to Revelation. We go straight to this uh, marriage feast of the Lamb. We go to this consummation of the age. We go to this completed work of Christ as well it should. Revelation 21, 1 through 4 says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Listen to this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The perfection of joy in Christ is what we look forward to. So my question to you this morning is where are you in this? All of us can find ourselves somewhere. Are you to a point that you're still looking at inferior things? Are you looking at things that can only make you look good on the outside? Are you here this morning because going to church is the proper thing to do? And it makes you look good in front of the people around you. Um, do you sit down at supper and say a prayer before um, supper time so that you're doing the right thing? Are you doing things to make you look like something that you're not because you're striving to achieve this cleanliness and holiness on your own? Because if you are, I will help you out. You're going to epically fail at it. And everything that you do is not going to matter. Why? Because your righteousness is as filthy rags. The best that you have is going to come epically short of what God requires. But when we see the true purification in Christ, then at that point, and only at that point, are we accepted in him. At that point, and only in that point, are we truly made pure in him. Are you in a place where you're drinking inferior wines? Are you trying to find joy in stuff that just doesn't matter? Are you trying to get that new car? Are you trying to have money? Are you trying to have power? And again, all of these things aren't bad. Go get you a new car. They smell good. 
go do it. But what I'm asking is, is that what you're finding your fulfillment in? Because that car is always going to get old. And you're going to need something else. Those clothes are always going to wear out or you're not going to be able to wear them anymore because years do things to your waistline. Uh, You're going to need stuff and you're going to always need stuff. Are you focusing on the wrong things for your joy? Do you find yourself there? Are you one that have found yourself in Christ that you've never ever seen him do anything through you or, or with you. You've never had the opportunity to share the gospel with anyone. You've never had the opportunity to help someone that's in need. You've never had the opportunity to help feed someone that's hungry or just be there as a shoulder for someone who's going through a hard point. Respond in obedience. Maybe that's where you are, that you just need to respond in obedience like those who went and filled the vessels with water even though it didn't make sense. All of us in this room, the last one applies to us. We need to all be looking forward to the day that the fullness of Christ is revealed to us, that our faith is made sight, and that we drink of the fullness of the joy that Jesus intended. John chapter 2 says this, On the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine at first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This was the first sign, first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory and the disciples believed him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed for a few days. Let us pray. God, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, I'm thankful that it speaks to our hearts no matter where we are. And so this morning, I ask, Lord, that if anyone in this room has not experienced the true purification that comes as a result of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and being obedient to the call and following him, I ask that today be the day that the blinders fall off their eyes and they are open to you and they respond to you, understanding that they are sinners in need of purification. God, I ask for the rest of us that you allow us to be obedient to your call, even when for us it just doesn't make sense. Lord, that we are obedient to follow you. And Lord, that as a result, you choose to use us. And God, we ask that you use us to do your work. When it happens, never let us point to ourselves, but instead point to you. Because that's what it's for, is to point back to you, to bring glory to the Father. So God, I ask that you do that. 
Be with us this week. Help us meditate on your word. Let it continue to speak to our hearts as we leave. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.